anchor. He is a refuge for us. Just so we know what's coming after the service today, um, we're going to see a baptism of, of Taylor, and we are just so excited about that, just the, the absolute reality of what God is doing. Amen. Let's not celebrate too much because we're going to celebrate even more when he goes down and comes up out of that water, and we're going to rejoice of what God is doing. But if you have your Bibles, 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings 18, and welcome to week three of a series that we are calling Mountains and Valleys, where we are walking through events from Scripture where people found themselves um, kind of at the very highest points of life and also um, in life's deepest valleys. And I know this could have been an opportunity for us to kind of go off of this and go a different direction today in, in light of all that was going on, but I really felt the Lord um, just leading us here, and we're going to see what God does with this. But the plan of this series is for us to walk through the mountains first, leading to the mountaintop experience of the resurrection at Easter. And then we're going to walk through the valleys of Scripture together and just see what God does in and through it. But this morning we come to this mountain called Mount Carmel. And when I, when I was young, when I was a kid, I used to play this game called King of the Mountain or King of the Hill where someone would place themselves on a hill or a raised object and would declare themselves to be king of that hill or object Individuals would then attempt, of course, to climb up that hill or that object and push the king over. And when someone succeeded in removing the king from that hill or object, they immediately became king themselves. Now, of course, I was a very small little boy, so I did not win many of those contests. If I were to win, I'd have to walk up behind somebody, catch them off guard, and push them over and then my reign as king did not last long especially when my sister kelly was there because she was meaner and stronger than me and still is and um, so she would literally knock me off the hill just like that but today's passage the reason i say that today's passage we're going to see a spiritual battle that takes place on a mountain that would determine not just the king of a hill or the king of a mountain but is really going to determine or show us who the true god really is if Mount Moriah, week one that we saw, showed us a mountain of testing or a mountain of sacrifice, and if Mount Sinai that we saw last week shows us how we don't measure up and show us how we need Jesus, then today's mountain, Mount Carmel, shows us a mountain of declaration, declaring who the true God is, but it also shows us a mountain of decision, meaning every single one of us, when confronted with the true God, we have a choice that we must make. Every single one of us, we have a decision, a choice that we must make. And so let me begin by laying two words before you this morning that are foundational to our belief system of what we truly believe. Those two words are this, monotheism and polytheism. So monotheism is the belief that there is only one God, that um, there is one, he is it, there is no more. Our memory verse for this week, Deuteronomy 6, 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Meaning there's no more than him. There's only one. There can only be one God. And that is our declaration. We are a Christian faith who believes that there is but one and only one God. Then you have polytheism, which basically believes that there are many different types of gods, many gods. And here's the reality. Polytheism has been and is perhaps the most dominant theistic view throughout human history, and it is still the dominant view today. That There are many different types of gods. There are many gods that you can choose um, to worship. And it is, it is this view that is confronted in 1 Kings 18. 
Let me give you a little background before we dive in and jump in. So it's been about 150 years since this guy named King David ruled Israel. King David was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He led the people to love the Lord, to worship God. Not that there weren't hiccups along the way because we know that there were, but King David led the people to honor God, to love God. The kingdom now, 150 years later, is divided. It's not united anymore. It's divided. There's a northern kingdom which has 10 tribes. There's a southern kingdom which has two tribes. And Ahab is now the seventh king of Israel, the divided kingdom. He has forsaken God. He worships the idol of Baal. His wife is the evil queen Jezebel. And uh, she worships Asherah and Baal and anything else that she can worship. In fact, along with Queen Jezebel, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 16.33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than any other king before him. So he just provoked the Lord, and God desired for his people to be faithful to him. But King Ahab led the people away from God. In a century and a half, in 150 years, Israel had gone from a united people who worshipped God alone to a nation who was confused and divided where people assumed that any religion would, would do and that all gods were essentially the same. And I don't think the issue was so much that the people of Israel were um, completely abandoning the Lord 100%. I believe that they just didn't want to choose. They didn't want to have to make a choice between what God they wanted to serve. They wanted to hold to the God of the Bible, sort of, while also being able to worship anything else that they wanted to worship. Anything else that came along, they wanted to be able to, to worship it. It sounds a lot like today's world. At that time, God had a prophet whose name was Elijah. Elijah's name in Hebrew literally means um, the Lord is God. The whole mission of Elijah's life as prophet was to show people that the Lord is God. There is only one God and it is the Lord. So God chose Elijah to get King Ahab's attention. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah stood before the wicked king and said, It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. So we have three years of famine, three years where there is no rain whatsoever on the earth. Just think about that. For Ahab, a man who worshipped Baal, this is like the false god of, of rain and fertility and, and sun, this drought sent a strong message concerning who God really is and really was. So when God was finally ready to send rain, God tells Elijah, go stand before Ahab. And so God, um, Elijah goes and stands before Ahab and basically says, listen, I want you, I want all the prophets, I want all the people of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. And what Elijah was thinking is this. The king's going to be exposed, the prophets are going to be exposed, and then the people of Israel are going to have to make a choice. Either follow God or follow Baal. That was the choice he was placing before them. They couldn't do both. Elijah set up a challenge in order to prove who God really was. And here's what I believe. I believe that the overall conviction of Elijah was that God is not just an idea. God is not just a symbol. God is not just a memory. God is not a tradition. God is not a religion. God is not just a um, whatever uh, projection of your imagination. Or God is not a genie in a bottle. The, the picture is God is and he was and will forever be God alone. 
This is the reality of what um, Elijah was saying, not just to them, but to us. So with that background, we're going to jump into 1 Kings 18. Normally I ask you to stand, but I know you're pretty stressed this week. So I'm going to let you stay seated, knowing that you'll be standing in your heart. And if you don't have your Bibles, the verses will be on the screen as well. But we're going to start with verse 17, and we're going to do a little bit of reading this morning. So just follow with me here. It says this, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 450 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table." So you thought your dining room table was big. I mean, this is a table that has um, prophets all around it. Verse 20, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call, call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God." And the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, and I pray, God, that every person in this room, either right now or by the end of this service, will be able to say, Oh, God, you are God alone. Lord, we pray along with Elijah that you would turn the hearts of people back to you today, that people would understand that they were created, God, for your glory, and that they would, Lord, not have any rest until they find their rest, Lord, in you. God, show us today that there is one God. It is not us. It is not the things of this world. Lord, it is you. It will forever be you. It's been you from the beginning, even before the beginning of our time. And Lord, you will be God forever and ever and ever. Lord, just speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think about this. 56 times in the Bible, the word almighty is used. And every single time it is used of God. It's never used of anyone else, of anything else, always God. Meaning that God is the omnipotent, all-powerful, almighty one. We normally explain it by using a negative. Basically meaning this, there's nothing that God cannot do. There's nothing that God cannot do. That is a staggering idea. God is never bound in his power. God can do one thing just as easily as God can do another. Think of it like this. God can make a butterfly just as easily as God can make a universe. That's our God. He can make a butterfly just as easily as he can make a universe. And he does everything without ever losing his power or his strength. And this is the God that Elijah served. And let me give you a little good news today. This is the God that we serve. This is the one that we serve. Again, picture the scene. Elijah stands before Ahab. They have this battle of words. Some strong words are exchanged. Ahab says, you're the troubler of Israel. And then um, Elijah says, no, you're the troubler of Israel. Not just you, but your father you know it begins to get bad when you begin to say your mama and your father. and all the, When you begin to bring up family, you're, an argument is about to happen. Things are about to, to go down. And Elijah won't stop. He also says, listen, these prophets, the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah that you serve, they're weak and they need to stand before me. The people of Israel that you serve, they need to stand before me. So bring them all to Mount Carmel. And this is exactly what the king does. This would be a place where the king would be exposed, the prophets would be exposed, and Israel would be confronted with their failure to trust God as God alone. But here's the reality. Not only would Israel and is Israel being confronted here, so are we. We will be confronted. So from this amazing scene comes three questions that are still relevant for us today. So three questions I want to lay before you today. If you're taking notes, it makes it easy to write them down. Three questions that every single one of us must answer. First is this. Are you worshiping one God or many? Are you worshiping one God or, or many? In verse 21, Elijah says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal, 
follow him. Think about what he's saying. The prophet of God is looking at the people and saying, who are you worshiping? Pick a God. He's saying, please pick a God. If you think Baal is God, then by all means, go all in for him. Go all in for him. If you think he's God, worship him and worship him alone. But if you think the Lord God, the God of Israel is God, then worship him. Listen, the people of Israel had already moved into a hardcore camp of idolatry. Yet even there, they were divided. They were indecisive. Some were following Asherah. Some were following Baal. Some were still thinking half-heartedly about the God of Israel. They were undecided, and they were limping. And um, Elijah comes to them and says, Listen, guys, stop being lukewarm. Make a decision. You can't have it both ways. Let me say this this morning. If you and I, if you ever find yourself limping between different gods... Not only will you be limping between those gods, you will be able to offer no hope whatsoever to the world around you. You'll be limping around trying to figure out what God to serve and being able to offer zero hope to anyone around you. But here's the reality. Most people that I know and most people that you know aren't worshiping Asherah and you're not worshiping Baal. The false gods of today are much more socially acceptable than that. And what I mean by that is this. We worship money, possessions, family, position, self-image, romance, sex, sports. These are the things that we find ourselves worshiping. And let me just say this this morning. I believe with all my heart if Elijah were here today, if he were here today, here's what he would say to us. And I believe this with all my heart. He would look at us and he would say, if money is your God, then serve it. If money is your God... Get all of it that you can, while you can, however you can. Lie, cheat, steal, sacrifice your family, sacrifice your integrity, sacrifice it and get as much of it as you can. If money is your God, by all means, never be generous, never give, always take. If that's your God, go all in. He would then say, if possessions are your God, Go into as much debt as you can to get all that you can. Buy it. Desire it. Never be content with the old it. Always want the new it. Go all in. He would say, if family is your God, then put them above everything. Don't ever give them to the Lord. Always serve them instead of serving the Lord. If approval is your God, then who cares what God is calling you to be? Who cares what God is calling you to do? Run as fast as you can and as hard as you can towards the approval of other people. Go all in for it. Go all out for it. I believe that Elijah would say, if beauty is your God, then nip it, tuck it, lift it, tighten it, tweak it, tan it, tattoo it. Do whatever you think is going to make your body more beautiful. Go all in. But then I believe he'd also say this, if romance is your God, then do anything to find it. Leave your marriage if you must. Break up someone else's marriage if you must. If romance is your God, then go all out for it. Who cares about other people? Make it all about you and your wants and your wishes. If sex is your God, then use up everybody. Use them up. Make all of your dreams come true. Every fantasy 
Make it fulfilled. Who cares what price you have to pay? Who cares what's coming? If sex is your God, then go for it. That sounds weird, doesn't it? But that's exactly what Elijah is saying to the people. Choose a God. Go all in for it. See where it gets you. But then Elijah would say this. But if God is the true God, and this book says that he is, then worship him. Put him first. Seek first his kingdom. Don't settle for anything less than him if he is God. If he is God, don't settle for less. I think of the words of Spurgeon who says this. Spurgeon said, if you're going to be saved, be all saved. If you're going to be saved, be saved all the way. Don't just allow yourself to be halfway saved. Be saved all the way. Here's the issue. Many professing Christians are trying to be a little into the world and a little into God. But they're enough into God that they're miserable in the world. And they're enough, they're enough in the world that they're miserable in God. They're miserable. Listen, when you and I are, are outside of God's will, we are in misery and we are in no help of, of giving hope to the world around us. Let me think about what you're doing today. So maybe you're here today and maybe, maybe you just come for, for one time. Maybe this is what you do. I think of what Pastor Matt Chandler and the church in Texas said. He said this, if you're just doing this because you've always done this, church is a terrible hobby. Church is a terrible hobby. Listen to what he says. He says, you have to get out of bed early each weekend. You have to come to a building where you have to park and walk into a sanctuary where you're always being pressured or guilted into serving. And then you have a guy stands up and yells at you for 40 minutes. That's a terrible hobby. That's a terrible hobby to, to have. Let, let me say something very clearly, and please hear this. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't love the Lord, and if you don't want to, then you're wasting your weekend by being here. I'm going to say it again. I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. If you, if you don't know the Lord, and if you don't love the Lord, and if you don't want to, you're wasting your weekend. The last thing, or excuse me, I don't want you to waste your weekend. I don't want you to waste your weekend. Don't waste your weekend. But let me go a step further. The last thing I want you to do is waste your life. Are you wasting your life? Are you wasting your life by serving that which isn't God? Are you wasting your life by serving that which can't save you? Are you worshiping one God or many gods? Which leads us to the second question, which is this. Will the God you worship come through for you? Will the God you worship come through for you? Elijah is about to provide an undeniable proof of the one God who will always come through. So on this mountaintop, in front of a crowd of witnesses, Elijah says, let's take two bulls. You take one, put it on your altar. I'll take one, put it on my altar. We'll pray to our different gods and the God who answers by fire. That is the true God. And here's the kicker. Baal was worshipped as the god of the sun. You know, the whole fire of the universe thing, the, the, the fire um, that comes from us, that keeps us warm. If anyone should be able to provide fire, it's the god of the sun, right? He should have fire. He should have lightning. He should have heat in his arsenal. So the, the point is here we have the, the people of, of Baal, the prophets of Baal. They followed Elijah's plan. They carried out his instruction. They called upon Baal, but nothing happened. 
from morning till noon. They're crying out, Bell, answer us, hear us, please. Yet nothing happened. There was no lightning, there was no fire, not a single stirring in the sky. No one answered. What a tragedy of false religion. That's the tragedy of false religion. You cry out to something who doesn't answer. In desperation, they began to leap around. They were leaping. They were dancing. I read a whole two-paragraph thing about what the dancing looked like. I gave it to Brother Curtis. He's going to be demonstrating at the end of the service. So you're not going to, not going to want to miss that. It's, it's, it's an awesome thing. But they were, they were dancing around. They were crying out. They were begging. They were pleading. They were trying to attract Bell's attention, trying to make the God of the Son hear them and answer them. Then listen and look at verse 27. Just follow me here. You don't want to miss this. And it says, At noon Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. They're saying, Elijah's saying, listen, he's God, cry a little louder. And then he says this, either he's musing, which means he's daydreaming, he's staring aimlessly into space, or he's relieving himself. And that means what you think it means. Elijah's saying, maybe your God's on the toilet. Maybe you got to wait a little longer. Maybe it's taking a little while. Just be patient. Or he's saying, maybe your God's on a journey. Maybe he's on vacation. Now's a great time to vacation. Maybe he's doing that. Or then he says this, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Maybe your God ate some cookies and drank some milk and got a little tired and needed a nap. And you need to cry out to him and you need to wake him up. Look at verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. Picture these prophets in absolute exhaustion, yelling and screaming what they call prayer, now cutting themselves and bleeding profusely. This is what false gods do. False gods push their worshipers towards destruction. Let me say this very clearly today. If you, are, if you are worshiping a false god, that false god will lead you to slash everything. You'll slash everything. You will have to give your blood. You will have to give your family. You will have to give your life. You will have to give your all for the sake of it and have nothing to show for it. Because follow with me here. If Allah is your god and you fail him, he will crush you. If Buddha is your god and you fail him, you will have bad karma for Ever. Secular gods will basically um, tell you that if you don't have them, you're going to be miserable for your life. But the God of the Bible, listen to this. The God of this word says, if you have me, I will satisfy you. And if you fail me, I'll forgive you. Think, the God of this Bible says, if you have me, I'll satisfy you. If you fail me, I will forgive you of your sin. And look at verse 29. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Their God, the gods of the, the prophets of Baal, the God they lived for, the God they cried out to, the God that they cut themselves for, their God did not come through for them. Which begs the question, has the God that you serve right now ever come through for you? 
Has the God that you serve ever come through for you? Has the God that you serve ever intervened in your life showing forth his glory? Does the God that you serve fight for you? Does the God that you serve or is the God that you serve working all things for your good because you love him and more importantly because he loves you? Does the God that you serve love you? Think about that. If, if your God isn't the Lord, then your God is destined to fail you. He will fail you. He will not come through for you. Will the God you worship come through for you? Has the God that you worship come through for you? And please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you serve a God that's always done everything you want him to do. I know people who say every prayer I pray is answered and God's never disagreed with me. You know, that tells me they worship themselves. If God, if the God that you serve answers every request by saying yes to you and he never contradicts you, then the God that you're serving is you. Because the God that I serve when I pray to him, one of, one of his favorite answers for me is this, no. You know why? Because many times in my life I pray according to my will and not his. When I pray according to my will and not his, he says, no, because my will for you is better than your will for you. Let go of your will because I have something better for you. And then I read this word, and every day I read this word, I'm confronted with who I am. I'm confronted with my sin. I'm confronted with my own motives. I'm confronted with um, the things that I think, the things that I do. I'm confronted with it, but praise God, I'm led to my failure, and in being led to my failure, I'm led to his Forgiveness. This is the beauty of the God that we serve who comes through for us. Which leads us to the final question. So think about this. Are you worshiping one God or many? Will the God you worship come through for you? And lastly, have you bowed your knee to the Lord God? Have you bowed your knee to the Lord God? So follow with me here. Elijah then called the people towards himself. And the first thing he does is rebuild the altar. Look at verse 30. Don't miss this. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. So notice these words. Someone in the past had once built an altar to the God of Israel on this mountain. But this altar had been forgotten, neglected, broken down. And I think that that is a... A very good picture of many of our prayer lives. Many of our prayer lives at one time, we were praying to the Lord. Our prayer lives were strong. We were seeing prayers um, answered all around us. And the prayer, the altar of our prayers began to get broken down. To the point where we don't pray much anymore or when we do, it's all about us. Or if we were to get you individually in rooms, in small groups and ask you, what was the last thing? When was the last time God answered a prayer? Some of us would go, um, I, I don't know. Because the altar of our prayer lives has been broken down. But our God is a God who hears. And he is a God who answers our prayers. Amen. So Elijah... He takes 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he rebuilds the altar. And understand what he's doing here. What he's doing is politically incorrect. So he's standing before the 10 tribes. If he wanted to be politically correct, he would have taken 10 stones, which represented the 10 tribes. 
But no, he takes 12 stones. Why? Because he's not praying to the God of Israel. He, or the, the God, the little small g of Israel. He's praying to the God of Israel. He's praying to Yahweh. He's praying to the God of this word. And the beauty here is that Elijah then not just rebuilds the altar. He has water poured upon the altar. More water. More water. Poured. And I love this because critics of the Bible will come and say, well, Micah, you just said that there was three years of no rain. Where did the water come from? Ha, 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 ha. And then I'll answer, do you know geography? Because if you knew geography right around or bordering Mount Carmel is this big thing called the Mediterranean Sea that has plenty of water always. Therefore, what um, Elijah had in his back pocket all along, and he told those who were following him, hey, go down, take your buckets, get the water, get ready. You're about to see what's going to happen. Yet think about this. Follow with me here. What is this act pouring all of this water? What does this act ultimately show us? Let me tell you what it shows us, and don't miss this. It shows us that God loves to be at a disadvantage, at least from our perspective, right before he wins. God loves to be at a disadvantage right before he wins. Think about Joseph in an Egyptian prison right before Joseph is ruling Egypt. Think about Gideon with his 300 men just before he defeats the mighty army of Midian. Think about um, this small, ruddy guy named David who's staring at the navel of a um, Philistine giant. Think about Daniel in the lion's den. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. Or think about Jesus on a cross. God loves to be at a disadvantage right before he wins. Right before he wins. And I don't know if you know this or not, God always wins. He always wins wins he never loses so elijah steps forward and he prays a 63 word prayer and then the most wonderful part of the story in verse 38 then the fire of the lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and everything on it and here's the beauty of it not only was elijah trying to expose the prophets of Baal, he was trying to get the people of israel to remember that their god the god of israel was a god of fire in fact when god met um, moses in exodus 3 it was in a fiery bush bush that was on fire but not consumed think about this when god led the people of israel through the wilderness it was in a fire by night when God called Moses up to Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments, fire came and fell in the tabernacle, the tent of meetings, and in the temple itself. When the offering was altered, the fire fell on it. But then don't miss this. Also, all throughout the Old Testament, fire was God's instrument of judgment. Judgment, fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire fell on Aaron's sons when they offered profaned fire themselves all throughout scripture we see in old testament we see the fire of god falling then think of it like this there were thousands of people on that mountain who had disobeyed god but when god's fire fell it did not fall on them it fell on the sacrifice don't miss this when it fell it did not fall on them it fell on the altar and on the sacrifice that had been prepared something similar happened with adam and eve after they sinned against God, God pronounced judgment. And God said to the serpent, Cursed 
are you? And Adam and Eve in that moment had to assume our curse is coming. We're about to be cursed. And instead, God says, cursed is the ground. He didn't curse Adam and Eve. Why? He couldn't curse them because he was going to save them. He can't curse what he had destined, predestined to save. Follow with me here. The same thing happened on Mount Carmel. The fire of God fell, but it didn't fall on the people. God struck the sacrifice instead. On another day, on another day, some thousand years later, another sacrifice was offered. When Jesus hung at Calvary on the cross, the judgment of God fell. But it did not fall on all the people around the cross who were guilty. It fell on the sacrifice. So that you and I, sinful men and women, might be forgiven in the presence of a holy God. Don't miss this. Thus, the sacrifice of Jesus becomes the focal point of our worship and becomes the one thing that if everything else fails, we can say um, of our God, He has come through for us. We look at the cross and our God has come through for us. But that's not the only thing we can say. Guess what else we can say? Every knee will also bow before Him. If you go back to Mount Carmel, here's what happens. Fire fell. The people, they fall on the ground. They say, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. Not only in that moment were they crying out and saying the name of Elijah, whose name meant the Lord is God. They were confessing even more that the Lord God is God alone. Let me end our time by saying this, or maybe after looking at those three questions, there are other questions that have to be asked, which is this. Have you come face to face with the God who came through for you on the cross. The God who made a way for you. The God who fights for you. Have you come face to face with him? And like the people here on Mount Carmel, have you bowed the knee to him as Lord? I pray that you have. Because here's what I believe. According to Philippians 2, the Bible says every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's what it also implies, and don't miss this. Unfortunately, for many who will proclaim Jesus as Lord, it will be too late for them because they didn't do it now. They didn't do it right here and now. Don't wait until one day where you will have no choice. Do it now. Bow your knee to him now. He is the one who will forever come through for you. Stop worshiping anything else. Stop worshiping what will fail you and worship what has and will forever come through for you. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. And we're going to call the musicians forward. And we're going to say that whatever God is speaking to your heart in this moment, that you would listen. Let us pray together. Father, we just come before you now in this moment declaring that there is a God and there is one God, and Lord, you are it. And we're not just doing that because we've come to that conclusion. We're doing that, God, because you have said so. You have declared that, God, that you are God alone. There is no one but you. Today, many of us, God, have come face to face with the reality that there are other things that we are worshiping. And Lord, if we were to hear your word, your word is saying, go all in. 
Go all in. If, if you've come face to face with me and yet you love something else, go to it. See what it will do for you. But the word tells us it will fail you. It will fail me. It will fail us. But God, you will never fail. You have shown that at the cross. You will never fail us. God, I pray today for anyone in this room that doesn't know you. That would be honest enough, God, to say that up until this point, they have worshipped other gods or limped between two gods. Yet never truly bowing their knee to you. That today would be a day of salvation. Today would be a day that they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. Lord, turn back hearts as Elijah prayed today. God, turn back hearts away from idols, away from little G gods that can't save. Turn back hearts. And bring us to this mountain, God, of faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.